0: Welcome to the History Extra podcast, fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. At first glance, the disciplines of history and science might seem worlds apart, but look closer and it turns out that the two fields are more interconnected than you might imagine. This year marks the 50th anniversary of the Wolfson History Prize, awarded to standout history books since 1972. And as part of the celebrations, we've teamed up with the Wolfson Foundation to bring you some fascinating conversations on history's biggest topics. Today's panel discussion, which was recorded live at the Royal Society, is all about history and science chairing the discussion and introducing the speakers was the biological anthropologist, TV presenter and author, Professor Alice Roberts.
3: Thank you to the Royal Society as well for hosting this event tonight. So we are going to have a discussion about the relationship between science and history, how interconnected those subjects are or aren't, but also how this connection can help us with challenges that we're facing in our our society now. So, thinking not just of the, of the past, but actually using the past to, to inform us in the future. So I want to introduce our wonderful panel tonight. I shall start with um, Sanjoy Bhattacharya, sitting next to me. Sanjoy is currently Professor of History of Medicine and Head of the World Health Organization Collaborating Centre for Global Health Histories at the University of York. But in September this year, he will be taking up a new post at the University of Leeds as Head of the School of History. Sandroy works on South Asia across the 19th and 20th centuries. He also looks at the histories of international and global health programmes worldwide. He teams up with social health and medical scientists all across the world. And Sandroy has been involved in policy research, design and evaluation work, as well as, of course, history for almost two decades. Lindsay Fitzharris is a best-selling author with a PhD in the history of science and medicine from the University of Oxford her debut book, The Butchering Art, won the Penn E.O. Wilson Award for Literary Science and has been translated into 20 languages um, and it, uh, a masterpiece. She has a television series on the Smithsonian Channel, The Curious Life and Death of, exploring some of the most mysterious deaths in history, and a new book, a yes, new book, right. which we want to hear all about as well. well I'll bore you all soon <laughs> <Excellent>. <laughs> with the details. excellent. Um, Sasha Handley specialises in early modern social and cultural history in the British Isles, particularly interested in uh, histories of everyday healthcare, especially sleep um, and sleep practice, supernatural beliefs, especially relating to women's histories, and the history of emotions as well. She's a fellow of the Royal Historical Society, she's co editor of the Bloomsbury Monograph series New Directions in Social and Cultural History. She's chair of the Wellcome Trust Medical Humanities Discovery Advisory Group. And she's a member of the Bodies, Emotions and Material Culture Collective at Manchester and Associate Director for Research uh, within the School of Arts, Languages and Cultures from 2021 um, up until 2024. If we just start off thinking about science and history, and I think what's interesting in our universities is that very often those subjects are are completely separated from each other, very often in completely different schools or faculties. What is is the relationship between them? Because I think that we tend to think of science as being something which is future-facing and history as something which is looking back. Um, How important is it, do you think, to to find or create those connections? Sasha, can I start with you on that one?
4: As an early modernist, I always find the division of those two disciplinary areas really superficial and it's not a division that applies to the communities that I study as an historian. I think it's really the 19th century where that process starts to accelerate. So actually it's um, it's completely natural in my period to have people working across um, history and, uh, and science. So one example of that is um, Robert Plott, who is a professor of chemistry First keeper of the Ashmolean Museum in Oxford, but also really inspired by Roman and Saxon history. And that was really a lot of his motivation for getting involved with the chemical experiments that he did. He becomes a fellow of the Royal Society. The 17th century, where I spend a lot of my time, um, has so many exciting collaborations um, across what we now call separate disciplines. Mm. So I find it a strange conversation, but um, I'm sure my uh, more contemporary colleagues will have something to add.
3: Um, and Lindsay, how, how important do you think it is that we establish these connections between these two subjects?
5: Well, I definitely think the three of us need to make that case because otherwise we're out of a job. Um, so we're, we're here to tell you that the history of science and medicine are important. But I understand the sentiment that science is forward thinking, that history is, is um, looking to the past, but it does, Sort of underline that misconception that science is created in a vacuum, but science is and has always been affected by the social and cultural forces around it. And so, to give you an example from my recent book, *The Face Maker*, um, to remind you again, it's about the pioneering surgeon Harold Gillies who rebuilt soldiers' faces. In the First World War. And to understand how plastic surgery emerges as its own discipline, own subspecialty in medicine in the 20th century, you really have to go back to the trenches of the First World War. But facial reconstruction this time isn't just advanced by this, this medical need, because there was all of these people getting hit in the face in these trenches. It's also advanced by the facial biases of the society around them. And those beliefs go back hundreds, if not thousands, of years. And I think that a, a closer study of the history and science of medicine can help us understand science today again it's not created in a vacuum and so this is why it's so important to to study these disciplines and if you do it just casually or if you do it in a scholarly way it's just good because it gives you that kind of context that I think is really important
3: and Sanjoy I mean presumably if we're if we're not aware of the history of science and medicine we're we're highly likely to make mistakes again
6: Yes, and, and for me as a contemporary historian who also works with policy actors, notice two things. So I've begun, thanks to this pandemic, working with colleagues who work on wonderful things like vaccines, and I do think vaccines are good things. But they have now come to recognise, I think, at least the one the scientists I work with, that it's not enough to create a wondrous scientific product. It mm-hmm. needs to be taken into societal contexts, which are very diverse, very complex, and then explained in a culturally respectful way. And that's where I think historians have a role. But in the policy field, and this is from my experience of working with both WHO and South Asian governments, every major report starts with the preamble, which is history. Mm. And we have to move that preamble into a history of maybe three heroic, usually white men, into a more sensitive social history and administrative history Mm. that contextualises why the policies that the report is talking about happened in a particular way. So working with policy makers and implementers in writing more thoughtful reports I think there's a role for historians in that as well.
3: And presumably a role for historians in, in also, I mean, taking your, taking your example there, in, in, in pointing out how badly things can go wrong if you don't do these things in a culturally sensitive yes. way. Yes. Um, and, and you are likely to encounter resistance if you just turn up as a scientist saying, by the way, I know what's good for you.
6: <laughs> I think humility is core to engaging community respectfully. And I'm afraid some scientists don't do that.
3: Yeah, yeah. So
6: there are different types of historians, there are different types of scientists. I think the COVID pandemic has created a wonderful opportunity for the more democratic historians to work with the more democratic scientists. And I think that's wonderful.
3: And I think it's really interesting taking that kind of long view of uh, what we can look back now on and say, you know, definite advances in in medicine, for instance, and, um, you know, thinking about uh, the vaccination programme and the engagement around the vaccination programme, which came very late, Um, all around the world. Um, And it reminded me, Lindsay, of your book. um, And it it reminded me of, um, of, of Lister going to America to say, I think actually we might find that surgical operations are going to be much more successful if we use my antiseptic technique. And the uh, the
5: ulcer resistance, you know, the really entrenched resistance to him. Yeah, absolutely. I I think, you know, I I write narrative nonfiction, which is a bit of a sin in academia, Um, but I write for commercial audiences. I'm, full disclosure, not an academic anymore. Um, And so my first book, The Butchering Art, was about a guy named Joseph Lister, who people sort of know through Listerine, which he didn't actually create. And he applied germ theory, became an advocate of germ theory and surgery in the 19th century. And you're right. He received an enormous amount of pushback, not necessarily from the public, but from within Mm -hmm. these medical communities and from his colleagues. And that's such an important lesson. You know, I have a lot of medical students or doctors come to my events and if they can read a book and remember that oftentimes that pushback does come from within that we need to remain open to creative solutions to the most pressing problems of today. I think that's a powerful message that we can take from history, but you know, there's, there's so much to learn from the past, of course. And um, I just, I'm always delighted when anybody wants to learn a little bit more about medical history, but you're right. That's one of the lessons that I feel is, is really important to take forward is what we know today isn't going to be what we know tomorrow. And we really need to stay open to those new solutions, uh, whether we are general public or whether we're within these the scientific and medical communities as well. And we're here tonight to
3: celebrate 50 years of the, the Wolfson History Prize. I wondered, this is a big question, but I wondered if you could um, perhaps draw out any key trends that you that you perhaps see have happened in writing about science and medicine over the last 50 years? Sasha. <laughs> <laughs> over um, you. <laughs> yeah,
4: so my, my first thought here is about a trend in historical writing in the field that has been most formative for my work. And um, I go back to the 60s and 70s, the History Workshop movement uh, was really formative in helping shift focus from quite traditional histories of great men, often great white European men, great inventions um, and and institutional histories to um, histories of everyday life and thinking much more expansively and inclusively about who has expertise and agency in in terms of medical practice. So um, I was trained as a social historian at the University of Warwick, so that's always been a focus for me. Um, And the, the current project that I mentioned a little while ago, is trying really hard to recover uh, women's expertise by looking specifically at um, everyday healthcare practices within the household, which in my period was the main hub um, of healthcare practice, Mm -hmm. um, given the sort of relative lack of availability of professional medical interventions um, for the vast majority of the population. So it, it, it really changed the way in which I thought about uh, these kinds of histories and who my um who my subjects could and should be. yeah, um, and I had to be quite creative in thinking about the kinds of source materials that that would give me um interesting insights. so um i I often turn to, quite non-traditional sources at the time like uh, recipe books which which are about cookery but also about uh, medical recipes and they reveal this incredibly deep well of expertise about the plant world, the kinds of animals that you might use in medical recipes of various kinds and they are treasured family uh, objects that are passed down three generations usually through the female line Recipes are added to you, adapted over time, and they're, they're, they're really kind of exciting, living, thriving source materials that have only really started to be taken seriously in the last 20 years or so,
5: I would say. Once you get your eye in with the handwriting, they're they're really rich. And And it also just shows that women, you know, traditionally have been on the front lines. You know, that would be the first line of defence in the past if you were sick. And that kind of gets ignored a lot of times, I think. And I think that's worth also reminding the general public about as well. So that's really fascinating work you do.
0: Still to come on the History Extra podcast.
5: So I think that historians... Also, I think that the the communication between these disciplines could help them become better communicators as well. And and also, you know, vice versa, learning a lot from the science and medical community as well. Historians have a lot to learn from that.
2: We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down.
1: and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. eBay Motors is here for the ride.
3: Sandra, what do you what do you think have been the main trends in terms of writing writing about history of science and medicine then over the last few decades
6: So I agree that you know I think for me the most striking change has been to move away from the history of heroes to studying diversities of perspective because for instance I sometimes tease colleagues who are friends when they're working on a project on let's say colonial India, and they're only looking at, let's say, 20 white colonial officials, all men. And for me, that's white diasporic studies. Yeah. That's not a study of India. So uh, there's a different way of looking colonial India. I mean, there's some absolutely wonderful work some by my PhD students who've gone into the domestic sphere, looking at the roles of mothers and grandmothers, processes of self-medication, uh, highlighting how powerless the state often was in certain contexts.
3: So this is fascinating because it, it sounds as, as as well as though there's been a, a movement towards perhaps asking the question first and then going to find the, the resources rather than seeing what exists. So, so rather than just saying these are the materials we've got, let's draw our histories from that to, I, I suppose, hypothesis-driven research where you're, where you're saying I want to understand this question, these are the resources I need. Would you agree with that?
4: Yes, I think... I think it is easy to as an historian to to just stick with what you know and to stick to the to the textual archive and to stick to the published textual archive which really narrows down the kind of person that you are likely to find Mm. and actually archival practices themselves are not often helpful for trying to recover the histories of indigenous communities around the world and actually we, we in Western Europe, we tr- we tend to fetishize the, the written word in ways that other cultures and communities really, really don't. In early America, for example, and South America, it, it really is the archaeologists who've done the most exciting uh, work in recovering the everyday experiences and kind of material surroundings of, of communities there. And There's, there's really exciting work uh, in tracing kind of food cultures that have uh, moved from Africa via the um, forced enslavement of uh, of African uh, men and women and, and tracing the exciting ways in which they tried to uh, keep hold of and to enhance uh, the kind of knowledge and traditions of their own cultures mm. but a lot of a lot of that is really hard for a historian mm. to recover unless they're willing to turn to uh, non-traditional sources and non-traditional technologies and methods. So um, it's nice that that people have started exploring more um, yeah, and being yeah. supported to do that.
3: And and history linking up with archaeology to to as you say access these unwritten stories. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. yeah. I want to ask about medicine and, uh, and science in the here and now, and we've we've, we've kind of touched on this, but how, how does a historical approach shed light on how we understand science and medicine? I mean, certainly, you know, when, when I did uh, my medical um, undergraduate training back in the 90s, we, we rarely touched on any history at all. And it was as though medicine in the 90s had just arrived as a fully formed thing. <laughs> and we didn't really have any understanding of where that had come from. How can a historical approach... Change and improve our
5: understanding. Uh, Can I start with you? I'll I'll give it. I'll give it a crack. Um, You know, I I think one of the things that I've learned through a study of the history of medicine is that there's nothing new under the sun. Some of the so again to go back to the facemaker, there are these biases against these men with these facial injuries and I worked with a disability activist and she gave me a lot of context about this this history that I probably couldn't have teased out myself so one example was Harold Gillies had banned mirrors in these hospital wards, and he had done it under the guise that he was protecting these men because as you go through facial reconstruction, your face could look worse before it looks better. And there was an element of that, and certainly he believed that that was a positive thing, but she was saying to me, think about how it also instilled in these men a belief that they had faces that weren't worth looking at. And when I started to really dig into these facial biases, and of course they go back hundreds of years, they're linked to uh, you know, visible disease, Diseases such as syphilis in the past where you get something called saddle nose and your nose caves into the, uh, into the bridges into the, into the face. Um, it's linked to criminality. Certain crimes come with purposeful disfigurement at this time. And then go all the way up to today. And these beliefs are still alive today because how many villains in Hollywood movies are disfigured? I I sat down to make a list and I thought, okay, there's Darth Vader, there's Voldemort, there's Harvey Dent becomes evil after he is injured in the face. You have the Joker. I mean, the list goes on and on. And so the past, there's that continuity. And so I always just kind of come back to, there's nothing new under the sun. And I think a better understanding of where this comes from and how it becomes internalized into our culture can help us change those ways ultimately. So, so, so yeah, there's nothing new under the sun sun um, and there's lots of examples of that you know we can look back at the past and kind of thumb our nose and say well that's crazy that they used to do that or i would never do that but then there's a lot of examples of of similar behaviors uh today so that's what i think
3: yeah sandra (laughs) how how do you think this historical approach then can can transform our understanding of, of, of science and medicine right here right now
6: working with who colleagues uh on on community engagement uh during this pandemic has made us realize the level of remembrance of colonial practices in healthcare. Mm. So in Africa, for instance, we have to remember that, I mean, decolonization happened in the 60s. It's not that long ago. There were a lot of trials where people suffered. There was a lot of colonial violence associated side-by-side with enforced vaccination that, again, caused suffering. So communities like that have to be engaged, respectfully engaged, and a critical distance has to be created between what we're trying to do now in terms of vaccination and what happened before. So for me, history plays a very important role in trying to explain that complex past to especially European policymakers in ways that they don't turn too defensive because that is one of the biggest problems you have. It's a lot of defensiveness and that becomes actually quite harmful to policy implementation of funding projects. So it's a diplomatic history approach towards trying to explain that it's okay for people to remember that violence and it's okay now to say that it's not the same but to say it's not the same, we have to know what it was in the past. Mm. And history has a very important role to play there. I work on smallpox eradication a lot, the history of smallpox eradication. People forget smallpox was only eradicated in 1980, uh, certified eradicated in 1950. Many of the people who face violence during smallpox vaccination programs are now fathers and grandfathers of mothers and grandmothers. So People remember, you know, as you know, anthropologists have pointed out, bodies remember violence. Mm. Um, so I think it's very important for historians to remind policy makers of the provenance or the planning of such programs so that before the new projects go into Asia or Africa, there is better understanding of who should go in, who should step back. You know, how do you plan to go into, let's say, a Muslim part of a Hindu village in India, you know, who do you talk to? How do you make sure the women have been engaged? Uh, so the historians have a social historians have an immense role to play in all of this. I think
3: that's, I suppose, the the role of uh, of, of history and historians when it comes to to modern policy making. Um, what about individuals? What about individual scientists and doctors? How how would their understanding of their own subject be be improved? Do you think it's Do you think it's important?
5: Is it important for doctors and scientists? It's got to be because to otherwise we're out of a job again. No, but I mean, <laughs> no, it, it, it's. I, I think they're. You know, I, I speak to general audiences a lot, and they are made up of, of people in the medical community, which is a joy to see that there's this sort of thirst for that history. Um, but also, like Sandra, we were talking back there, and something struck me about there's something that historians could teach to the science community on how to communicate, like the the improvement on communication, because of course historians have to communicate in a very different manner than scientists communicate and how to get those points across in a, in a sensitive and convincing manner um, that isn't just like follow the science, you know, which doesn't, if that feels like a command and it doesn't work necessarily. So I think that historians also, I think that the, the communication between these disciplines could help them become better communicators as well. And for, and also, you know, vice versa, learning a lot from the science and medical community as well. Historians have a lot to learn from that. So I could offer one specific example from my work on sleep as well, if it's helpful.
4: So Russell Foster, who's a professor of neuroscience has done an incredible amount of valuable work on circadian rhythms and how those biological rhythms uh, direct people's sleep preferences and timings, etc. But he's really uh, taken on board some significant findings from historians in the field who have uh, pointed out that it seems to be the case that uh, pre-modern communities, uh, many of them, didn't sleep in a a kind of monophasic one cycle of sleep, which actually has been taken as um, the normative assumption for Mm. scientific experiments and practices of various kinds. Mm. And that's opened up a whole new set of questions about what their baseline could and should be, um, whether they need to look to more historical evidence to try and find connections to to sleep disorders of various kinds. So the the historian who's been most... um, prevalent in this discussion is not me Uh, it's an American historian called Roger Kirch who put forward this idea of segmented sleep the idea that pre-modern communities slept in two separate cycles which they often called their first sleep and their second sleep that were separated in the middle by an hour or two of waking where they sometimes got up and did things around the house and then went back to bed again so findings like that really kind of I think help make the point that historians can disrupt some of these paradigmatic Mm. assumptions about where you start as a scientist.
0: The speakers in this panel were Lindsay Fitzharris, Sasha Handley and Sanjoy Bhattacharya and the chair was Alice Roberts. You can find out more about the Wolfson History Prize at wolfsonhistoryprize.org.uk. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Jack Bateman.